Good morning. It's June 28th, 2020. It is Pentecost 4. We're on the fourth Sunday after Trinity. Good morning. Our focus this morning is on the resurrecting Christ. And it comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Second sermon in this series on the book of Romans. I remember in a humanities class back at Concordia College, Ann Arbor, Michigan, we studied a diversity of art forms with Christians' expressions of faith from artists throughout the centuries. One artwork and artist we studied was Vincent van Gogh. And this is what I remember from that class session. For a year, van Gogh had been in a mental asylum in the southern part of France. At times, he was allowed outdoors on the grounds accompanied by an attendant, and at other times he was confined to the building, painting scenes he saw through the window in his room. Van Gogh was disturbed, not only by the confines of his room, but also by the confines of his mind. He suffered seizures and mental distress. Where could Van Gogh go for relief? Into his suffering and confinement came a letter one day, small but powerful. It came from his brother, Theo. Theo sent Van Gogh a copy of an etching from Rembrandt. In that letter and in the etching, Van Gogh discovered life and hope. The picture that Theo sent was Rembrandt's fifth etching of the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. In it, Jesus stands there, a ruling figure, towering, powerful, looking out over the scene with his hand over the tomb, and at his feet Lazarus is coming out of the tomb. No one looks at Jesus. All eyes are on Lazarus as he rises from the grave. Yet Jesus stands there, the resurrection and the life. Here is the resurrecting Christ. From him comes all power, the power over death and the power of life. In his rule, he raises Lazarus, opening the eyes of all people to see power the power of the resurrecting Christ. Well, when Van Gogh received this picture, he was inspired by its power. He remembered the etching, and he remembered what had been written about it. But when he looked at it, he saw more that could ever be written. He pondered it. He painted it and sent his brother a letter with his own small etching, trying to put into words what he saw. Here, in the suffering and confinement of an asylum, and in his own mind, Van Gogh experienced the power of the resurrecting Christ. Written in letters, <clears throat> painted on canvas, the resurrecting Christ brought life and hope and beauty into the world. Our text this morning is also a letter, a letter that proclaims the power of the resurrecting Christ. The Apostle Paul first sent this letter to the church in Rome but it comes among us today to bring life and help, hope and beauty to our own world. The power of Christ is found not only in this text, but actually flows throughout Paul's letter. Consider how he opens the letter. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Here Paul presents himself in language very similar to that used by servants of Caesar, only the powerful ruler that Paul serves is not Caesar. Paul serves Jesus Christ, the ruler of all things, declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 
Paul then states the main theme of his letter in verse 16 of chapter 1, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul's letter is all about power. The power of the gospel to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Finally, consider how Paul closes the letter. He says in chapter 16, verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God's power is there at the beginning of Paul's letter, at the end of Paul's letter, and all the way through it. Paul's letter is filled with the power of the resurrecting Christ, bringing life and salvation to all people. And why wouldn't it be? Paul himself knew that power. He had met the resurrected Christ, and in that meeting on the Damascus Road, Paul discovered Jesus to be more than the resurrected Christ. He was also the resurrecting Christ. He resurrected Paul. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he changed lives. Mary, outside the tomb, mourning. Thomas, in the room, doubting. Peter, out on the lake, fishing. Individuals raised from sorrow and fear and discouragement to life. And last but not least, the Apostle Paul. Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and raised him to life. Paul now proclaims this power to all people, to the church at Rome, and to us today. Paul turns our eyes to see Jesus, for Jesus raises us to life. Sometimes, however, Jesus is hard to see. Like the figures in Rembrandt's etching, people are looking everywhere except to Christ. For the church in Rome, Paul was concerned that people were looking to the power of the law as a source of life. Paul himself did at one time, look to the power of the law. He was zealous among the Jewish leaders for the law until he met Christ on that Damascus road. Israel believed in God's law. God's Torah, the law, was good. It was a design for life, and they couldn't imagine their relationship with God apart from that law. They saw the law as a power for life. They turned to the law, seeking to obey it in order to participate in God's life in the world, to justify themselves and their actions before God according to that law. They were so focused on the law that at times they changed God's law to fit what they considered to be doing enough so that they would not be found guilty. Unfortunately, they were so focused upon the law that they lost sight of Christ. They lost sight of the Messiah. They lost sight of God's promise. They thought that their righteous keeping of the law gave them acceptance and eternal life with God. In a similar way, people today, including Christians, are in danger of living the same way under the law. Consider a family that brings their son or daughter to Sunday school or confirmation, not because they want him or her to grow in relationship with Jesus, but simply because they want them to learn the Ten Commandments and a good moral foundation to become a, or to become a member of the church and follow in the tradition of his or her parents. You know, they drop the kids off at Sunday school or confirmation, but they themselves don't come. Later, they may think, oh, well, he or she may choose to follow God in any religion. For now, what is important is that this child gets the basics, the law of God to know right from wrong. From the description of this family, it seems that the law is holy and righteous and good. 
They see that their tradition has as something that they should be perpetuating because, well, that keeps you secure, keeps you in the church. But they've lost sight of God, and they see the power in the tradition. They see the power in law, but they don't see the resurrecting Christ. Paul writes this letter to be sure that no one sees the law or perpetuates a tradition without seeing Christ. Christ must be the central focus of the law and the tradition. And Paul does this because he knows something. Paul knows the terrifying power of the law. It has power, all right. It has the power to awaken our sin. It has the power to make us, remind us of sins that we've done in the past. It has the power to enslave us to our consciences and not forgive ourselves when God has forgiven us. It keeps us in the insane asylum of our own minds. Although the Romans may see life in the law, Paul knows that eventually they will see death. They will be buried because of their sin. God's law is good, but our lives are not. Holding on to the law or tradition without Christ is like holding on to a knife as it cuts you to death because neither the law nor traditions give you new life. Only Christ does. The law has a condemning power, an accusing power. Paul writes that it arouses our sinful passions. When you hear what you are not supposed to do, you end up wanting to do it. Paul didn't know what coveting was, he says, until he was told not to covet. And then sin awakened and created all kinds of coveting within him. Sin comes alive and we end up dying. Dying while holding on to the good law of God, trying to please him with our own righteousness. For this reason, Paul points us to Christ, the one who dies while holding on to us. We were sinners in the hands of an angry God, but now, God, now we are, but now we are sinners in the hands of our gracious Savior. Christ saw us in our sin and offered his life for our salvation. He died under the condemning power of the law for you. Through his dead body, Jesus Christ sets you free. Free from conscience, free from death, free from the power of the law to condemn. As Paul writes, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. In his death, Christ puts to death the condemning power of the law. By his death, Christ brings life to you. Those who see the law and hold on to it without Christ will ultimately die unable to be fulfilled it, to fulfill it. You, however, who are baptized in Christ are baptized into his death. And by his death, Christ sets you free from the demands of the law and gives you his righteousness and his perfect obedience. Paul reveals the power of Christ to set us free from the condemning power of the law and the enslaving power of blind tradition and raises us to life as a people of God. It seems odd to be living in the United States and listening to Paul tell us about freedom. After all, as Americans, we pride ourselves on freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, academic freedom, the list goes on and on. In fact, in America, our infatuation with freedom has led some to believe that they have the freedom to rewrite the laws of the land and rewrite specifically the laws of God and create a different way of living in the world, a powerful way, their own way. They're licensed to live 
freely turns into licentiousness. In Deuteronomy, God commanded Israel to remember his commandments, to, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And that's precisely what they did. God's people literally tied his word to their bodies, winding leather straps up their arms. For many, that's how the law of God feels today. Constricting, absolute, definitive, condemning, my, condemning my desires. It, it feels like you're in a straitjacket to be in to be under God's law. The power of God's law is like holding you into this insane asylum, trapped by your conscience. So the natural thing for humankind to do is to take off the law by just making a new one, still losing sight of the resurrecting Christ. Well, Christianity is binding. It's filled with rules and regulations. It constrains you and drains you of what this world would call the joy of life. You can't do what you want when Jesus calls you to love your neighbor. And you can't follow others when Jesus calls you to follow him. So some Christians celebrate a freedom from God's good design, a freedom that we can call distinctly American. It's a freedom that fits with the culture of individuality in this society. It's living by the power of the law, but my law, to justify my actions, to show myself off as a righteous and not sinful person. It's a freedom that abrogates the law and seeks not to comply with authority, including to challenge even the law of God. Take God's good design of marriage or human sexuality or issues of abortion or murder and think that such things can be redefined to fit our present day or personal circumstances. We can change those things. They're too binding. We take it as sort of our manifest destiny, perhaps, to redefine the ways of God for our 21st century world. These redefinitions of God's law stress that God is loving and good, as we want him to be acceptingly tolerant of anything and everything that we do or deem good and just. We seem to think that his love and his goodness set us free to be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. Old notions of sin and punishment and the law of God are discarded as we live in the freedom of the American dream and claim that God is living toward us and good because, well, we're Americans. And that justifies all of our behavior as just and good. You know, democracy. Whatever the people want, they decide. And it's so. And it's good. Such attitudes, however, would seem strange to the Apostle Paul. The law of God is not something you can redefine. Either as a Christian or as a person who just is following the law and is not necessarily a Christian. The law is God's. All law is God's. It is part of God's design and it has been built into creation. You can delude yourself that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter to God. That is the clash caused by our society's view today. No matter what your opinion might be of the law, in the end, you will be held accountable to God for your actions. He is the creator of life, the author of every person. A person could pretend that laws don't exist in our community. A person could go into a store and simply walk away with merchandise taken from the shelf, as many do today. 
It could go into a home that, that the person likes and try to start living there, also as some do today. In the end, however, hopefully this person would discover that he or she is not alone, and he or she does not make up her own laws, but he or she is part of a larger community and lives under its laws. So too, Paul wants you to know that you are not alone. God does exist and rules over all creation. He has set his law in place, and everyone will be held accountable to it before him. He has claimed you in the death of Christ to free you from the condemning power of the law. But he has also raised you in, life of, in the life of Christ to live and bear fruit for him, to be obedient to him, to live in love, the law of love, you might say, to your neighbor. Christ stands there on the edge of Paul's letter, ruling over the world and raising people to life in him. Paul does not stop after writing about the death of Christ. He continues, he writes about the resurrection of Christ because he knows that we have been raised to new life in him. Paul writes in chapter 7, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. With these words, Paul turns our attention to the resurrecting Christ. He not only frees us from the condemning power of the law, but he forms us by his Spirit to live as people of God. In him our lives are shaped by the Spirit and reveal the goodness of God's law, God's ways, God's people in this world, following and loving the will of of our Father. When Van Gogh looked at the etching by Rembrandt, he couldn't put what he saw into words. He tried, but he couldn't find the words. Instead, Van Gogh painted his own raising of Lazarus, based on a small detail in this etching. Van Gogh focused in on the figure of Lazarus rising from the grave. Martha is pulling the veil from his eyes, and Lazarus is only beginning to see the world again. Jesus is not even in the painting. He stands as the ruling figure in the background, not seen by Lazarus, not seen by his sisters, not seen by the viewer, but known to be there. What is seen, however, is amazing. If you look closely at the face of Lazarus rising from the grave, you see that Van Gogh painted himself into Lazarus. He has a little red beard on him. There he is, a thin, pale man with a red beard, rising from the grave. Whereas through the pain and suffering of the mental torment in the institution, where he was focused on his own mortality, where he was focusing on anything that condemned his conscience, unable to see all that God has done for him, not yet able to see Jesus ruling over all, only beginning to live, to taste the wonder of the resurrecting Christ in his flesh in this world. In the same way, Paul's letter invites you and me to live in the power of the resurrecting Christ, to leave the convicting power of the law and our consciences to repent, to come to him. Though we do not see him now, we know that he is risen and ruling over all things. His law is holy. His commandments are holy and righteous and good. In him we have died to the curse of the law and his body crucified for us on the tree. 
In him we have been raised to a new life in the Spirit, and we are only now beginning to experience the first fruits of faith in the kingdom of God as we live by his Spirit to freed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen.